Welcome to the CEC report for the 13th of January 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show we're discussing join the worldwide campaign for Glass-Steagall and our housing Ponzi scheme is coming down. So firstly today, join the worldwide campaign for Glass-Steagall. Now, the majority of Australians may not have even heard of Glass-Steagall and when you raise it to the man in the street, they often say, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, these two words behind which a crucial concept lies, which we'll elaborate today, uh, may be what saves the lives of every average Australian in this coming period um, and perhaps this year, in fact. Yeah, at least, I mean, Glass-Steagall, for the, the, the viewers who haven't heard of it, is a legislation that was brought in the 1930s by Franklin Roosevelt to deal with the two big to fail banks back then in the 1930s that were responsible for the Depression. And what he did, what Glass and Steagall did, they were congressmen, they, they put up legislation that Roosevelt signed into law after passing the Congress that separated out the big banks. It took the commercial necessary banking system that we need to have for our economy the boring banking, as we call it, you know, the, the mortgages, the loans and so forth, the, the banks that hold people's deposits, and they said that has to be completely separate from the merchant, investment banking, insurance arms, stock broking and so forth, uh, so that the, these uh, investment arms of the banks don't have access to depositors' funds. Mm. Now, since the deregulation of the banking system, particularly since the late 80s, early 90s, you've seen more and more... Uh, uh, deregulation and in 1999 that Glass-Steagall legislation was repealed mm. in the US and consequently and subsequently right throughout the world. So what you've had now is a build-up of these two big-to-fail banks that are absolutely stuffed chockers with derivatives and other speculative uh, uh, instruments. You know, derivatives are basically gambling uh, instruments that the banks use to so-called mitigate risk and all sorts of excuses like that. But as you've seen across the world, you've seen the collapse of Greece, in particular, in the, you've seen the collapse of many countries, you know, the, the Ireland, for example, a, as a result of the build-up of this speculative activity. And here in Australia, we have the four or five too-big-to-fail banks, which another term for this, as you might hear, is vertical integration, where mm. you've had all these different other services piled onto this boring banking, things like insurance, stockbroking, investment banking, merchant banking, and so forth. And the idea of a Glass-Steagall is to say no, let us have the boring banking and mm. let's protect that boring banking for the sake of the economy. And if people want to invest in, in the risky stuff like merchant banking, investment banking, well, that's fine, but mm. the two have got to be separated. Yeah. And that's what Glass-Steagall means. That's what the, 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 it's like a metaphor now yeah. for that process. Exactly. And if under those conditions, under Glass-Steagall, if the investment banks that are gambling away quite happily, if they do lose everything, if they make a bad bet and they collapse, then the average person who didn't enter into any contract to gamble is safe. That's They're right. separated out. And the government um, would guarantee and back up the, the boring commercial bankings as it should. It won't need to if it's no. properly regulated. But nonetheless, that, that is the most important part of the economy, not the mm. speculative side. Yeah. Now, of course, we've um, been pushing for Glass-Steagall for many years, but we launched a campaign late last year in particular to get it into this new parliament. Uh, and we had a petition called Australia Break Up the Big Banks Now Pass Glass-Steagall. And that is now, uh, as well as on our website, on change.org, which every time somebody signs that, 
sends a message through to all the leaders of the major parties, the Prime Minister and the relevant ministers. So people should go to change.org, search Glass-Steagall and sign on to that. Now, this year, we are determined to get that through, as well as uh, bringing it back to the forefront in the United Kingdom, where it's had an enormous amount of support, uh, and it nearly passed in 2013. And in fact, after Donald Trump's election, because he'd promised Glass-Steagall, uh, Lord Stoddart actually raised Glass-Steagall to the government and said, what are you going to do about Glass-Steagall in the light of the fact that the US are now looking at it? Now, speaking of the US, there's a big campaign that has been launched there to hold Donald Trump to that promise because no one really knows what Trump's going to do. Is he going to flinch on everything or is he going to follow it up? And so there's an Ohio-initiated campaign uh, which is organised by a group of generally Bernie Sanders supporters, actually, because he was a big supporter of Glass-Steagall. It's called Our Revolution <clears throat> in Northwest Ohio, and it's been supported by other major organisations, and they're grassroots-type uh, movements. So they've issued an open letter to Donald Trump, and it's headlined, Make Good on Your Campaign Statement to Support the Glass-Steagall Act. I'll just read a couple of excerpts. It says, as you take office, the conditions for a collapse are too similar to those of 2007. We applaud your campaign statement in Charlotte, North Carolina on October 26, 2016, endorsing a call for a 21st century version of Glass-Steagall. To set the tone of discourse in Congress 2017, we ask that you restate your support for a Glass-Steagall Act during your State of the Union address. Be assured in doing so you will find common ground with both the Republicans and the Democrats since both party platforms have the support of banking legislation that separates insured accounts from Wall Street speculation in their respective platforms. So this is quite an important call and in fact uh, we're calling on people and they're pushing for people across the world to sign on to this call which you can find at the CEC website to, to give a show of support because essentially uh, if Trump does follow through on this, politicians in the United Kingdom and in Australia who have been blocking moves or hedging their bets on implementation of Glass-Steagall will be forced to address the issue. Mm. And if it passes anywhere really, Craig, the implication would be if other countries didn't do it, the whole system would be collapsing around their ears. Well, that's right, because you're talking about dealing with the too-big-to-fail bank phenomenon, what hasn't been done since the global financial crisis, and there is no other solution. I mean, you, every, every action that's been taken by the Bank of International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board based uh, at the Bank of International Settlements has failed. The bail-in operation mm -hmm. has failed. The recent banks in Italy, for example, there was intention of trying to bail them in. That is, steal people's deposits. But that hasn't been able to be implemented because mm. politically, trying to steal people's deposits, which is the intention of the bankers, just won't work. So no. what's, the, what's the solution? You have to separate out this monumental mountain of debt, say it is unpayable, and protect the local and necessary banking system. And here in Australia, we have trillions, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. I think it's $36 trillion of uh, derivatives and the national capital value of derivatives. And they keep rising at the rate of something like $6 trillion a quarter. And this is the pure speculation that we have in the system, which back prior to the 1990s didn't exist. Mm. So, I mean, this is the nature of the current banking system. It's like a, job, a global casino. And it, and it is in the process of disintegration as we speak. Mm. Yeah. Now, mm. 
So we'll stop for a short break, but we'll come right back to this after the break and discuss a bit more of the detail of exactly why we're in a worse position than 2007, 2008. Welcome back to the CC Report, where we're discussing an international campaign for Glass-Steagall banking regulation. Uh, now, we're going to just give a bit of a sense of where the financial system is at in the ongoing crash. Uh, Craig, you just mentioned the Italian banking crisis, which is probably a real trigger point for the moment. Um, the Monte de Paschi Bank, which is the oldest bank in the world and one of Italy's biggest banks, uh, the crisis there which is extremely grave, has not been resolved. Basically, at the end of the year, the government, as you said, refused to enact a bail-in, stealing depositors' money to save the bank because they knew the political implications of that because uh, most of Italian bondholders who would lose their money are ordinary savers. That's where they put their savings typically over there. Um, so instead, the government said we're going to nationalise the bank, which means basically a government bailout. And the European Central Bank said, well fine because they really couldn't do anything else but they said um, if you do a government bailout the capital requirements we demand for the bank will be nearly double basically mm. so they instead of having to raise about four billion they had to raise more than eight billion um, to pull together but what the Italians are beginning to do more and more uh, and we've seen it with various politicians and commentators that are coming out and saying look Italy's being made the scapegoat look at Deutsche Bank look at the whole system the original cause of the problems at the MPS Bank were because MPS bought a bank, Anton Veneta Bank, from Banco Santander and the Royal Bank of Scotland, which was a part of bailing out the global financial system post-2008. Mm -hmm. They paid more than double what they should have paid and they got put into huge debt. Um, so now uh, various leaders are saying, look, the non-performing loans of Italy's banking system is not the issue, it's the derivatives bubble, and unless you deal with that, there is no solution. Now, the other interesting thing that has just emerged is that in a report from the uh, Office of Financial Research in America, which is part of the U.S. Treasury, uh, they've revealed that the biggest U.S. banks, the globally systemic ones, have an exposure of two trillion US dollars to the European banking system. And we'll put up a graphic which shows a lot of its derivatives, but it's all the same kind of dodgy dealings that got them into trouble, all the same kind of speculation in 2008. Uh, and one other warning was that the OECD has just put out a, a warning saying that the property bubble is another trigger point, that the overinflation of property prices could burst in the coming period, and we'll talk about that a bit more later in well, the next... in some places it is bursting. That's yeah, because Australia actually is uh, the one place where it didn't really burst already, and it's dramatically overinflated. So we'll come back to that, but two warnings I wanted to mention, Craig, because um, you know more people are beginning to realise the scale of what we're looking at here. And there's a banker by the name of James Rickards who's just made such a warning. He was actually a lawyer for long-term capital management, which when it collapsed in 1998, nearly brought down the entire global financial system, which was admitted um, by you know, leading people at the time. And uh, so he would be in a position to know. And he's warning of a new crash of un unprecedented scale and damage. And in an interview on the 26th of December with MarketWatch, he was asked, 
Why do you believe a financial crisis is coming in 2018? And what do you see as the likely triggers? He said a financial crisis is certainly coming. It could happen in 2018, 2019, or it could happen tomorrow. The conditions for collapse are all in place. And then he went on to say that the crisis is inevitable. And when asked if this was likely to be on the scale of the 2008 crisis, or he said, or the interviewer said, what is a better comparison? Rickards answered, the new crisis will be of unprecedented scale. This is because the system itself is of unprecedented scale and interconnectedness. And then he talked about the exponential growth in the system since 2008. And he said, this means that if you double the system, you do not double the risk. You increase it by a factor of five or 10. Since we have vastly increased the scale of the financial system since 2008 with larger banks, greater concentration of banking assets in fewer institutions, larger derivatives positions and 70 trillion of new debt, we should expect the next crisis to be much worse than the last. There is no comparison short of wartime exigencies such as 1914. The next crisis will be of unprecedented scale and damage. Now, fortunately, Craig, he did uh, say that his solution to this would be the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall, breaking up big banks and banning derivatives. And he also talked about tougher law enforcement of bank wrongdoing. So this, this is basically what we have specified as well, uh, Craig, to solve the system. Yeah, I think one of the things that there's no penalties these days for bankers uh, and their activities. I mean, after the last global financial crisis, no Wall Street bankers were jailed. No. For the, their role in the collapse, right? And that's the problem. There's a policy too big to jail. So consequently, the sort of behaviour that is, is this, by bankers, the, the sort of behaviour into speculation is sanctioned, it's protected, and they can get away with it. Until you start jailing bankers again, putting mm. bankers in jail for fraud, which mm. is what it is, then this sort of behaviour uh, is going to continue. Mm -hmm. So we, we take the uh, position of what Ferdinand Pecora did in the Roosevelt period, where he actually uh, was able to successfully jail some bankers and, point, and, and, re and then establish the groundwork for Glass-Steagall. So that having a, st a stable uh, banking system, well-regulated, is the norm. Not this deregulated crap that we've had, mm. which has seen the, the, the potential destruction of many, many livelihoods into the future because of the collapse of the system. Mm. And the alternative to having that kind of Glass-Steagall solution is not pretty. And that was pointed out by another financial expert, Ernst Wolf, who did an interview with Sputnik Deutschland, he said the collapse of Monte de Paschi, the Italian bank, could bring on financial fascism because he said, you know, any kind of pathway they're talking about of bail-in and bail-out won't solve the problem. It will just reappear and will be accompanied by popular uprising and social explosion. So he said bail-in will only be possible with the use of force against citizens. The reason why the police and the military are currently being deployed everywhere on the pretext of combating terrorism. He said if the deployment of police and military is not enough, the financial industry will be left with one possibility. It will abolish what remains of democracy and follow the route of fascism. And we've seen this historically uh, mm. in the 1920s, 1930s period, Craig, and we certainly don't want a repeat of it today. Well, back in 2002, Elisa, that's now, what, 15 years ago, we put out a new citizen, economic development or police state fascism 
which is looking at this exact same problem. Because back in 2002, under the uh, leadership of uh, economic physical economist Lyndon LaRouche, he was forecasting back then that the entire system would collapse, which it did do in 2007. So the only solution is to go with large-scale economic development, right? Go back to Glass-Steagall to start with, establish a national bank to create large amounts of credit and then spend that into the economy in large-scale infrastructure development and science driver projects. That's the solution. Mm -hmm. Now, we've not gone down that road in the last 15 years. So the problem's getting worse and worse and worse. And the, consequently, what you're seeing is this development of police state fascism. All the terrorism laws that were introduced by Howard in 2001 were not done to combat terrorism but were to do, done for exactly the reason you just said, to control the population in times of economic upheaval. Yep. And that's the nature of how the financial oligarchy is looking at the world today. They're looking at trying to control the livelihoods of people through police state fascism measures because they don't want to lose control of their financial mm. system. Yep. Now, people can ring in on our toll-free number and get a copy of our Australian Alert Service, a free copy, to find out more about those subjects. And after the break, we're going to talk more, focus in on the Australian housing bubble and the implications of that collapsing. Welcome back to the CC Report. Our housing Ponzi scheme is coming down. So now we get to discuss the implosion of the property bubble. <clears throat> and as I just mentioned, this is being warned of not only by the OECD, you know, many, many voices have been warning for some time that the Australian property bubble is going to burst. And there's been coverage of the Australian situation across the world just recently. Um, now, there's a major report that just came out on the Western Australian housing collapse from LF Economics. And it says that property investors are losing wealth and income by the day. It says property investors cannot borrow against lost equity and their Ponzi finance schemes are struck firmly in reverse gear. And so basically you've had, um, in just in 2016, house prices dropped by 4.3% in Perth and 7% in the rest of the state. And there's an exodus of people uh, flowing out of Western Australia as a result. Now, Brisbane, there's another case study coming from Montgomery Investment Management in a video called Property Implosion. And they talk about uh, the amount of new construction around uh, five kilometres of the CBD of Brisbane, where you've had, in the first nine months of last year, over 5,000 new apartments, which when they came on the market, vacancy rates doubled. But there's 13,000 more to be completed in the next 18 months. So it's going to cause that to follow the pathway of Perth. But Sydney, of course, is the, um, the big one, Sydney and Melbourne. And we'll just focus on Sydney uh, because there's reports from CoreLogic, which is a property analyst group and a number of very useful graphics. But prices in Sydney have risen by 15.5% last year. Melbourne prices rose 13.7%. The prices in Sydney have actually doubled since 2009 and we'll put up the first graph which you can see here uh, it shows the um, the red are the houses worth over one million dollars in Sydney on the left are the houses I should say and then on the right are the units so the units are slightly better um, than the than the houses but as you can see to buy a house in Sydney Craig one million dollars is the new standard obviously there's a lot that are over one million as well 
in various parts. Yeah, that's the same in Melbourne as well. At least in many yeah. places now in Melbourne. So Melbourne and Sydney are on a par. That all those cities just you know, a little bit ahead. Yeah, you don't have to live in a high-falluting suburb. No. Um, they're just regularly, you know, a million bucks for yeah. virtually nothing. Uh, and then if we look at the next graph here, you can see the change from December 2011 in the median um, house prices in Sydney again. So on the left, you've got December 2011. On the right, you've got December 2016. And you can see that that $1 million price tag has gone from, you know, a smattering to covering uh, last year most of Sydney and surrounds. And this is the median house price, which means some are slightly lower, others are much higher. So yeah. it's just, it's, uh, it really does show you the big, and this is only in five years, right? This is not over, you know, 25 years, but just no. five years. So this shows you the, the growth in the bubble. Mm -hmm. And it is a bubble. And this next gra graphic is from Pete Wargent, Australian Finance Company. Uh, and this shows the average mortgage size from 2012 to the end of 2016. And it's shown state by state. So New South Wales is the one on the left, Victoria, Queensland, WA, South Australia, NT. Um, but yeah, you can see here, uh, the, um, it, the, this spread of million dollar properties is driven by debt. And you can see the increase in each case of the mortgages that people are carrying. Yeah, in September 2012, you can see in Sydney, for example, New South Wales, the average mortgage was about 455000 Today, it's 605000 Yeah. And this next graphic, um, th these are from a report uh, from LF Economics from November last year. And uh, this one shows how long it will actually take people to save a deposit. It takes around nine years, whereas in 1975 it took only three years to save your deposit. That's 20% of the value of a house, a deposit. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then on the next graphic, uh, the median price to income ratio, which shows you know around how many times your annual income, how many years it would take you to actually pay off your house, and or it takes around 12 times the amount, I should say, of your annual income now. And that's an average 12 mm. times your annual income to pay off your house. Mm. Um, I believe in some places it's up to 30 times or so your income to actually buy a house. And of course, many people will not pay it off in their lifetime. Um, now, of course, this means that the East Coast is going to follow the West because look at our economy here, we're shutting down you know, our power production, we're shutting down car production, manufacturing. How can it not? This is a bubble, it has to come down, and it's already started coming down. Well, you're looking at the uh, median, uh, medium, um, or the ratio of medium incomes to the price of housing. When the incomes start to fall because people are unemployed, and there's been reports of unemployment increasing steadily over the next several years because mm -hmm. of the shutdown of industry, mm -hmm. that directly is going to affect how, how much people can pay for housing. Add to that the glut of uh, things like flats and yeah, you know, particularly empty. around Docklands here mm. in Melbourne, they're just, there's, there's thousands of these empty apartments that haven't even been built yet that are going to come onto the market. Mm. So you're going to see people, why, why would people buy an apartment today when they think the price is going to come down in five years time or mm -hmm. two or three years time? So this downward pressure is going to begin to accelerate and people are going to, you know, as they lose their jobs, they're simply not going to invest in housing. Mm. And the whole bubble where the banks are exposed to because of the, 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 the way that the, you know, their yep. assets are tied up in mortgages is going to be put real pressures on the banks. Yeah, 60% of our banks' lending is in mortgages yep. in what has become a vast speculative scheme to generate profit and money to keep the system going. 
since it was you know, narrowly saved in 2008. So there's no way they're going to save it. We need Glass-Steagall. That's the final word on it. We need national banking. We need large-scale infrastructure development to really stimulate the economy and create mm. a lot more productive jobs that actually produce real wealth. Mm. So Lisa. go to our website and sign our Glass-Steagall petition and get involved. Thanks for tuning in and join us again next week.